Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and in turn, how our clients view us. It is my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? I aim to bring my audience new voices from around our industry, interesting people with diverse backgrounds. Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I am excited to have the one and only Ted Majeka as my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Some of our listeners may know who Ted is, but for those that do not, it's hard for me to know where to begin. Ted is a husband, father, real outdoor guy, and never shies away from an adventure. He holds a degree from Stony Brook University in economics and art and has his MBA in finance from Fordham University. Ted has over 40 years of experience in the business world, most of it with architecture and engineering firms throughout the United States. I'm not calling you old, Ted, I promise. He integrates his financial management and operational expertise to provide consulting services in all facets of these professional organizations. I know this firsthand because Ted was the key person in helping myself and my partners in our ownership transition to purchase Mancini Duffy. We'll get to that in a bit. Ted's career in the architecture and engineering industry starts in the finance departments at Gensler, New York, and then Gensler, Washington, D.C., then to Forrest Perkins, HDR, and my firm Mancini Duffy in the early 2000s. I met Ted when he moved full-time to consulting with the Zawai Group, the nation's leading consulting service for the AEC industry, probably around 2012. I remember meeting the, quote, consultant that was going to, quote, help do the strategic plan. I can say honestly now, looking back, I hated the idea of a consultant. But meeting Ted changed my perspective immediately. Ted, thank you so much for agreeing to be on my podcast. It's an honor to have you here. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to start our conversation a bit backwards, uh, just to give the audience a flavor of what you're all about. So COVID hits, and you decide it's a great time to buy an RV and go explore the country. While the rest of us are home quarantining, you and your wife, Leslie, are in fact quarantining, but on the road exploring the country. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so actually three years before this, we we purchased this uh, Class A 39-foot motorhome and we pull a 13-foot Jeep Wrangler. And we just were sitting there around. Uh, we'd been to Idaho in January to celebrate my wife's birthday, but we said, you know what? Let's go where COVID isn't. So we went west, <clears throat> went to uh, Arkansas, up into Alabama, up through uh, Alabama into um, Missouri, Nebraska, Kansas, 
with the, the idea, the, the main goal is to get to the Tetons Glacier and uh, Yosemite. So we went through South Dakota, went to the Badlands, spent a week there. Mind you now, this is with our girls. And right now our girls are, are both a little white cat and a golden retriever. <laughs> Those are the girls. Our, our children are all grown, so they're different gig. <laughs> so we go through South Dakota, we go into Wyoming. I mean, we're, we're hitting all of these cool spots different rules, very relaxed, you know, wineries open, places open. And then we head into Montana, went to Billings, Bozeman. We get to Butte, Montana, and it's so bad because of the smoke from the West that the air quality was in excess of 200, and we were supposed to go north to Glacier. We bagged it. We didn't, we didn't want to drive, you know, unnecessarily and go somewhere where you know, this beautiful scenery was going to be, uh, you know, constricted by smoke. So we headed south through Idaho. We actually tried to stay away from the smoke, got all the way to Steamboat. We spent five days in Steamboat Springs, which was great. And then we just headed back to uh, through Tennessee, you know, of course, across the, the, the plains, Oklahoma, all the way into Tennessee and then into North Carolina and 59 days, 5,100 miles. That's awesome. So what I... I really wish looking back that I would have had the foresight to do that during quarantine rather than kind of lock myself in my house. So, uh, well, we're actually, I mean, cause we're where we are, we're in, in the mountains, uh, West of Asheville. So we, we really have been blessed and lucky, call it whatever you want to not have to deal with a lot of what's going on, you know? Right. So we're, we, we can go hike, we can get out, you know, we're, we're always out. We're not. And if we're in and we're, happy. And a lot of our friends are happy to get together and, you know, we, we all are okay. Right. Uh, we're so yeah. that's awesome. So, yeah. so tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, personally, you know, where did you grow up and tell us a little bit about your childhood? Okay. So, uh, grew up in Astoria, Queens, you know, that was where I was and, and went to all of the local high local schools went to LIC and one day um, my, my parents, my grandparents decided to move. So I needed to get a job. So I got an afternoon job working at Tiffany's on 57th and 5th. And, I, and, and then I commuted back and forth um, to go to high school on the Long Island Railroad from Huntington oh, wow. every morning for my senior year. So at that point, you know, uh, went to Stony Brook, got married. Uh, Tiffany's offered me a full-time job doing auditing uh, and I took it, um, you know, and as things move on, you know, uh, I think Nicholas came first and, uh, and then we moved to Florida. I opened up a reprographics business with a friend of mine, <laughs> five years doing that, came back to DC, went back to work for Gensler, had a great time. Um, and then Gensler just, you know, it was time to move on. So that was, as I said to my, my, uh, my wife at the time, now I get to do what everybody does when they're in their 20s. I'm going to hop from job to job. So I literally had all of these different jobs. The only person who recognized the value of that was Mark's wag, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. All right, cool. So, so when, you're, when you're a kid growing up, um, were there any hints that you would be, you know, become part of the architecture and uh, engineering profession? Yeah, I always like to draw. I like to tinker with uh, you know, just sketching. Uh, but, you know, it's not like architects. I can ask any architect when they were going to be an architect. And they told them they, they would say I, I was going to be an architect when I was five years old. They knew it. Yep. It's something weird. I, I didn't. I had um, I was always drawn to landscape, nature, photography, that kind of thing. 
Okay. So I ask this of every guest. Can you describe your childhood home in detail? Oh, yeah. 1913 21st Road, right? One block from the East River, uh, probably a, like a three-story uh, stone building, had a an alley in the back. There was a, my grandmother had all these things growing. She had goats and chickens in the backyard. And uh, I can I can tell you every detail about that house. <laughs> That's awesome. That's, so you attend um, Stony Brook University in, according to my notes, 1973, which is when right. I was born. Right. <laughs> uh, and you get a degree in economics and art. Is right. that correct? So how does yes. that oh, how, how does that kind of come together? It doesn't. Um, I was just you know doing math all day long, and economics was boring. So one day I took couple of art history classes. Well, I wound up having a 60 credit minor in art history. Okay. Got it. Which is amazing. So I actually had a double, it wasn't double degree, but it was great. So I'd go to, you know, the Museum of Modern Art in New York and I would, I would make sure that um, I had these really pretty um, pictures that, you know, I would look at and then I'd write papers and get A's and I loved it. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, and then, uh, and then on top of that, I started going and, you know, Fordham at night um, to get my master's and Gensler actually was, was a big part of that. They art, I remember was very proud. And he, you know, I, I remember getting a nice letter from art saying, congratulations on completing your MBA. So tell, tell me a little bit about Gensler because when you started with Gensler, this was in 1980, I believe. And this was Gensler in the very beginning, right? This was, but how many people were they? So I was, I, I remember this, I was number, I was employee number 593. They kept track. I don't know if that's how many they had, but I think at the time there were five locations. Okay. And you know, so New York had just opened up San Francisco, LA, Denver, Houston, and, um, and New York. And I remember being hired during the new New York city transit strike. As a matter of fact, I have no idea why I got the job because I had to go to this interview on a bicycle and I was in a tan suit. I had shaved my beard because everybody was supposed to be clean looking. And I meet the first guy I meet has got a beard, a turquoise earring and a, where a bunch of beads around his neck. And I'm like, okay. And that was, that was, and they were in the D and D building. Okay. And so quick, funny story. I go to work, I get hired. Margot Grant hires me. I go to work the first day. Nobody's in the building. They're not on the floor that I went to. They're gone. And I'm like, just committed the worst mistake of my life. I'm sitting by the elevator with kind of like my head in my hands. And this guy gets off the elevator. He goes, you, Ted? I go, yeah, who are you? I'm Larry. We moved over the weekend. <laughs> Big confidence builder. So. Oh, that's funny. And didn't you, and I and I don't want to speak out of turn, so I could always edit this out if you want. Um, but didn't you meet your now wife on your first yeah. you know, day first as well? Day. First day, I walked into this little office. And there's all that's staring me, these beautiful eyes and this this really pretty woman who is going to give me the skinny on the junk that I just inherited in my job. <laughs> and that's correct. So uh, Leslie and I had known each other for 40 years. Uh, she was married to Jim Follett, who was Art's right hand. And we always just had this very casual relationship. And she, you know, she was married. I was married. And one thing, you know, we, we, we never, we always saw each other when I went to San Francisco and Jim would always say, Hey, your buddy's in town. You want to have him over for dinner? I'm like, sure. Why not? So that's how we <laughs> st- stayed in touch. And, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. So, you know, fast forward, you know, 2007 ish, I, I go through a divorce and all of a sudden it's like, 
you know, there we go. Wow. Boom. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. So did you know when starting at Gensler, did you know that they were going to be the powerhouse that they are today? And for those that don't li- that don't know, uh, you know, Gensler is probably over 5,000 people, if not more at this point, um, you know, offices kind of in every city whatsoever. And I feel like, you know, us at Mancini Duffy, we're always honored to compete with them because, you know, we're the 100 person firm and they're the 5,000 person firm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. somehow they're always at the table. They're always there. They're, they're kind of yeah. anywhere and everywhere. Um, it's an interesting, you know, did you know that, that they had something special? Well, so the, the only thing that I remember was that, first of all, I couldn't find anything about them in trying to do some due diligence. They didn't exist. They were a privately held company. Right. Until somebody, I, I, and this again, this is 80, so we're not talking about like a lot of technology. So, so I talked to somebody and they said, you should check these publications about, about interior design and architectural digest where they were starting to get a lot of traction. And their mission was to be the, the architect for every Fortune 500 firm on the planet. Right. I think they succeeded. So they definitely, yeah. yeah. Post, <laughs> post COVID, they were 6,800 people, 59 locations, 49 locations. Okay. The only billion-dollar architectural firm on the planet. The one thing that I, I can tell you is that where I saw something that I'd never seen before was here's a guy, Art Gensler, who's a technical creative guy, and he's marrying the creative side with the, the financial art accounting side. And he that was his – I think that was a, a big strength. The success of the firm is not just the, tech, the technology and the, the design – it's this rigorous attention to detail on the finances. Wow. Wow. They yeah. had that. Yeah. So that, we, that was in place in, in 1980. Okay. So we, we can get into that later when we, yeah. when we get to the end, but, but yeah. yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more for sure. And so is, when did you meet Tony Sharippa? And I'll just, for the audience, Tony Sharippa was um, really the, the CEO of, uh, of Mancini Duffy when I kind of came to the firm, a mentor of mine that ultimately was the person that, you know, I bought his shares in, in kind of when he went into retirement. So when did you meet Tony? Because I know he was at Gensler in those those days yeah. as well. So Tony gets hired in April, I think, of 80. Uh, no, I get hired in April of 80. I think Tony's not too far behind. And interestingly enough, we both are on the Huntington line. I get off at Huntington. He kept going on to, to um, I think, uh, Northport. Um, and so we, we come in, we'd see each other on a train in the morning. We'd come home together at night. You know, it was, it was, we always timed our, our trying to get out at the same time when we could. Right. So that's how we got. And, and then they were doing a project for Goldman Sachs, which was, you know, sort of groundbreaking. Uh, and Tony was the project manager on it. And I was the guy who had to beat him on the head all the time for information. <laughs> <laughs> and he was good. He was pretty good. Although Tony, you know, Tony, right? Tony, Tony's a very interesting guy. His office looks like a bomb hit it, but he can tell you where every piece of paper was. That's for sure. Tony, where's the project reports for Goldman Sachs? Hang on. And he'd just lift into a pay and then he could talk conversantly about anything. He was a very bright guy when it came to the numbers. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And and then t- Tony's obviously our connection and how we know each other later on yeah. when you come back right. to, to to Mancini. But kind of continuing on with your career, where did you go after Gensler? You went to Gensler, D.C. And then kind of just give us a little history of your of your until you get to. Uh, yeah. So um, so I I uh, I did some small work for a local firm and it was in Alexandria. 
And I was in uh, Washington and I turned the corner and there was a guy in the 90s who was hired by Ed Friedrichs to come into D.C. His name was Stephen Perkins. He was going to be the director of architecture. Well, Stephen stayed at Gensler a little bit and then he left. Well, in 1997, I think it was, I'm turning the corner at like K and 17th or something and I bang into this guy. And all his papers go flying all over the place. Well, it was Stephen. And we have a conversation. And what they were doing was he wanted to bring high-end hospitality design into D.C. And he was connected to Deborah Forrest. So they formed Forrest Perkins. Right. So I basically was everything other than design for five years. So up until about 2002. And then I get a phone call and it's HDR. They want to hire me in Alexandria. And they've got you know, huge projects, didn't know anything about engineering, didn't know anything, but I got interviewed by the guy who was the president and uh, wound up getting hired and worked with their managing principal. And that lasted till I think 2004. And then there's another phone call. It's Tony. <laughs> hey, Ted, we need your help. You want to, you want to be our principal in DC. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> off I go again, you know, and, and that was a, uh, that was really, I think the most I, I always said that that was the culminate. I thought the culmination of everything I had learned. Okay. Because I stepped into a BD role and 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 did a whole bunch of different things. And then after that ended in 2007, uh, I kind of took a break and then ran into the consulting world. Got it. Okay. So so back in the the DC of man the DC days of Mancini Duffy it was obviously before my time. I know that office obviously had closed down many many years ago. But uh, how how large was that office and and what were you guys so, doing in terms of revenue? I think I, I have to. I, I always say this, and I'm probably you know skewing it a little bit. But when I showed up, and you have to remember, I didn't understand what was going on. This was the hottest market on the planet, and they're sleeping. So I think it was roughly 35, maybe 25 to 35. And I just remember looking around and going, what are these people doing in these seats? There's a whole bunch of unused talent. Wow. And um, so I remember um, we put everybody through pitch training. It was like the first thing we did. Get up, talk. And I found there was brilliance in some of these kids who are like cat operators. Oh, wow. So I had to, I extracted them out and created a BD team and off we went. And there was um, one other principal there. Arnold Levin had been the principal. Um, he, he, he was there for a little bit and then he left. And there was another man who was there, uh, Eve Springle, who actually was the production technology side. And then I wind up hiring Anik Javeri, who was with HDR. And the, the guy was a brilliant designer, still is. He works for, I think, Smith or something. He's in Morocco now. Oh, wow. And we had a three-legged stool and it was me out getting work, Anik doing the design and, and doing a lot of education. And Eve, basically the connection point to the market, getting the drawings out and then, you know, CA. Wow. So something that I struggle with, you know, is the multiple offices, right? And making them feel like one company. Um, and as I begin to add more offices... How is the experience for you of having a New York headquarters of Mancini and then the, you know, the DC office, you know, and what kind of, what kind of advice do you have for me in terms of making them feel like one place? Well, we remember now that this world is totally different. So being able to look at somebody, I used to be, I used to talk about voiceover IP when nobody knew about it and (laughs) said, 
I want to see faces when the phone rings. I want to be connected. And of course, Zoom has, I think, although it's connected us, it's disconnected us. One of the things that I used to be a big fan of is taking five people from D.C. and sending them to New York just for grins and giggles mm. and, and meet the people who you're interfacing with on a regular basis. And, if, and, and you, you see the successful firms that want to cross-pollinate techno, tech, you know, uh, design and technology uh, and technical aspects. I'm, I just am a big fan. Face-to-face is always better. It always delivers better. I mean, anything to be done. Yeah. But the, the real strength is getting there to be that. You know, in, in New York, you guys had those, uh, what were they, Thirsty Thursdays or something? Or, yeah, absolutely. Right? And what's, so, you know, mirroring that, I remember I used to close the office every day on Friday, every Friday at four o'clock. And I would say there's an, an alternate meeting site, and there was this really cool bar across the street. <laughs> and for two hours, we would sit there and we would just chill out. Nice. That makes sense. And, and I got a lot of noise from the New York finance people. Like, what are you doing every week? I'm like, it's a, it's a, it's a business development effort internally. That's right. Uh, that works. And once bars open up, we'll, we'll, we'll do that again for That's sure. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so back to Zweig. So tell us a little bit about Zweig and kind of how that came to be. Yep. So I met Mark in, in the eighties when he was doing a gig at Gensler and I always thought this guy was really cool. You know, kind of, you come in, you're the, you, you have this expert knowledge, um, from experience. I mean, he, he ran a thousand person architectural firm on the financial side. Um, so I had just finished a gig independently on my own in DC and Kate, we were, we were back in Florida and, um, Ed Friedrichs, who was also the former president of Gensler, I had reached out to him and said, Hey, you know, I'm looking to do some work. And well, he connected me to Mark. We had a project in Atlanta and unbeknownst to me, I was representing Ed's part and Mark's team was representing Mark. So I'm, I remember this because I was in Sarasota, Florida. I'm on a bicycle at a cafe and I get this phone call from Mark's wife. And he's like, I got to talk to you. I need consult. I need a consultant and, and he, I, I'll talk to you about what he says about consultants. But he said th- three hours later, we're still on the phone. And he said, you have the most interesting background I've ever seen. Even though you did all of this hopping around, you have this very diverse experience. You want to do some work with me working on architectural engineering clients. Okay. <laughs> well, it's okay. Um, but here's what we came to. Ultimately, we said consultants do one thing. And there's good consultants. And don't take this as a blanket. But they con you. Mm-hmm. And they believe that they have knowledge that you need, but they're going to make you pay for it in a lot of different ways, sometimes really not delivering much value. Our mission dead straight was to never tell you what you wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. We always tell you what you needed to hear. And, it, and a lot of times I can tell you those conversations with clients were never pleasant. I'm sure. However, it was the truth. So, you know, you need to hear the truth. That was our whole stick. We would, we would be ultra transparent, but you're going to hear things you may not like. 
And that's, I think that's why it was so successful. I know that firsthand. I mean, I remember you telling yeah, yeah. us things that, that, that we didn't like. And, and so when you and I meet, it's presented to me that, you know, we're going to have this consultant come in and he's going to help us with strategic plan. And your process is interviewing everyone at the firm from the mail guy to the CEO. And you and I sit down and we start chatting. And this was before I owned the firm. Um, and you did this extensive review from from people to finances to clients. I, I mean, I remember you even called our clients and asked them, you know, our opinions of uh, your their opinions of us. Yeah. Um, which I thought was crazy. And some of them were some of them were, I think, you know, shocked and 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 surprised that someone was calling to ask their their honest opinion and feedback. Some gave honest opinion. Some had praise. Some told us we sucked. And I, I think it it really made a different it, it, difference. It was amazing and uncomfortable. But what what stood out to you about you know us at that time at Mancini? Yeah. So we're, I think one of the things. Um, that has always been the forefront has been a high level of trust and integrity. I mean, you look at some of your clients, what they'd known Ralph, they've been, they were 30, 40 year clients. Yeah. So I think there's a high degree of trust and a high degree of integrity. I think Mancini's strength was if they, this is what they were going to do, this is what they would do. And it would be to a high caliber. That was the clarity. I mean, look, you know, stuff happens, people don't mix, but the personalities aside, the clients were, I think, um, always um, overwhelmed by the by the level of support. Meaning, there was always that incredible degree of um, wanting to to exceed expectations. Yeah, yeah, I, I I would agree that that still is ingrained in us. You know, I think that right. comes from yeah. from years and years of of that being taught to us. And it's something that we carry forward and it's important, you know, that responsiveness to clients. I mean, we yeah. really, really push that with everybody. And I can um, tell you that the, the one guy who ran, ran this into me was Mark. Okay. Mark's wife. He wow. said, everybody can respond to a text message. Everybody can look at their clients. If they're calling, there's a reason. If we, we are only in any professional service firm, we're only as good as the, com the response we give to the person on the other end of the phone. The flip side is that can sometimes get a little wacky <laughs> and then you got to manage it. But for the most part, I remember, Mark, we never had an out of office greeting. You never got an email bounce back. Interesting. You, the mission was to reach out and always be sort of accessible within the realms of reason and time in ter terms of time frame. It's interesting. So, I, I toy with that a lot. You know, if uh, if I'm going away on vacation, do I put my out of office on? Sometimes I do just to, uh, yeah. you know, and, and if there's going to be a delay. But but I, I agree with that philosophy. You know, there's really a, in this day and age, yeah. no reason not to not to get back to someone within, you know, a few hours, although it can take over your life. Well, yeah. And then you have to you have to, you know, ma marry that with practicality. But, you know, I think if you go back to things that people used to do, without even questioning it, right? You want to send a thank you note. Somebody actually writes a thank you note out, puts it in the mail and sends it because everything's text. I can bang out, right? But those things that were the niceties of practice and, you know, maybe a little bit more gentle are, are really, I think, hallmarks of really caring about the people you deal with from a client perspective. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> that's great. So, you know, in, in the eight years that has followed and when you and I met, uh, you and I have obviously remained close. You still do our strategic planning um, and you're a source of financial knowledge for us. Are you helping other firms today or are you retired? How, you know, what is so, your, what's your, you know, yeah, these days? So RVing? Around two, 2017, I came home in September and I said to my wife, I just flew 150,000 air miles. I never went overseas and it's only September. <laughs> Cause I was, I was fly I, with Zwag, I'd go to Jeddah, Egypt, well, you know, North Dakota in January, really good places like that. So we kind of made the decision that I would, I would throttle this down. And um, I think I did my last project in, I think it was the middle of 17. And I just finally said, you know, I want to, I want to just watch the trees grow. So subsequent to that, you and I continued to work together. Yep. The firm that there's a 5,000 EA firm person, EA firm in Egypt that I actually wound up doing a fair amount of work all the way up to almost M&A. Oh, wow. I, I had to go out and talk to billion dollar companies to see if they wanted to be bought. And then it gradually has, you know, throttled down to, I'm doing some leadership training programs that are virtual. So I, you know, some reading material, HBR articles, ink articles, and then really I'm, I'm helping people, you know, every level of executive do a sounding board. Right. So that's somebody to talk to that's not vested in what they're doing and they can feel comfortable. And that's something I've been doing pretty regularly. But yeah, uh, yeah for the most part, I'm retired. <laughs> it definitely comes natural to you to, to give feedback and honest feedback, which is what I appreciate. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people, so many interesting, innovative and smart folks. And we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. And so, so part of what we do here um, is take a critical look at how architects work with their clients and the process of how we deliver projects. You have a unique perspective, having worked at several large firms, uh, from the perspective of finance and operations, Gensler, you know, when it was only a couple hundred people, you know, to our firm, you're in the, you've been in the weeds of so many architecture and engineering firms. I thought it would be interesting to hear your perspective on the industry. Um, but with an inclination towards the finance side. So, you know, it's a series of questions that I'll ask you. Um, sure. But so in your opinion, you know, what do architects do well, you know, and, and what do they you know, not do so well? Um, and, and you can certainly answer this from the from the financial perspective. Sure. So, you know, for the most part, again, I'll go back to art. You know, art felt that architecture, design, they had their strengths. Creative people tend to not think about numbers much. And, and that becomes really apparent when you have to deal with a project manager. And what are the three pressure points? You know, where's your information so we can build a client? Where, where are you at relative to your project? And how are we doing collecting money? Nobody wants to deal with that stuff. Nope. Look at how it, your, your CFO pulls her hair out all the time. Yep. 
So I think um, there are architects and engineers that are really good at understanding the numbers. Um, there are architects and engineers who don't want anything to do with that. That's when I think the marriage of a good finance person or persons takes that ability and now they're balanced properly. And um, so I think architects are brilliant at creating space, design, functionality, uh, taking their clients to a whole different place when it comes to how people relate and interrelate. But then there's that other side of it that has to be done that has to bring, let's face it, you're not doing this to lose money. <laughs> a lot of architects don't get the concept of return. And, you know, when we took a look at multipliers of revenue to cost and, you know, you got to be able to generate a profit. That's the mission of anybody who goes into business. So I think being very critical on the metrics and review and a continuation of that really sets the stage for a good marriage between architects, engineers and their their financial teams. Yeah, no. And, and so one of the things that reminds me of is that, you know, we sell ours. And I guess the question is, how do we sell value? Right. Um, and do, do you think the actual business model for architects needs to change? Is there something in there that you've been you know, thinking about over all these years? Well, you, you look at it. I mean, what's the what's the m most of the time you're the lowest common denominator from a price standpoint? Yeah. Right. Value is perceived based on the last project, a reference, something that somebody has said, hey, Mancini is really great because of what? The people. Mm -hmm. The problem is you got to ultimately get away from the this hourly function and look at the value delivered and, and, and what's going to be achieved. And, and I think you've got some amazing stories, some of them the most recent ones with uh, some of the tools you're using with um, delivering incredible value that delivers on return on investment. So, okay. Oh, no, no, no. I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. What that's something that we've had to figure out along the way is to to not just think of it in an hourly way, or in fact, think of it hourly, but how to get more out of your out of those sure. hours, right? And so that's where we came up with the technology and this idea that we can do with a, what a normal architect does. In uh, you know, in three weeks, we can do in three hours. You know, harnessing the the leverage of the technology, and but still, you know, it's it's still a difficult model to kind of to to achieve. And, and let's let's look at it. Right, everything starts pre-programming in a you know. Do you understand the client? Meaning, what are they? How do how are they managed? What's their organizational structure? Hierarchy. How does that integrate to what we're going to be looking at from a program? What's a program look like? And then taking it all the way through those elements of, you know, moving and, and grooving through the process. It's see, it's it's you know what I think COVID has done is it's told people that education needs to change the way we do it because we're killing the kids in time. Mm -hmm. Think about it. When the, in, kids in Europe they go through their high school, when they get to high school, they already sort of have an idea of what they're going to be doing, and when they graduate high school. They're already accepted at a university in the field that they're going to practice in. Right. I, I'm, I, even architect, I know architects who are in France who did this, except they do one brilliant thing. They said, take a year off, go have fun, explore the world and make sure this is really what you want to do. I think COVID has shown us that we got we can teach kids at all levels a whole different way of learning. OK, COVID has also showed us we can do architecture 
in a whole different way of learning. And the question becomes, and I think we talked a little bit about this, what are the brilliant people at, and I mean this, the brilliant people at all the real estate entities, what are they thinking? Yeah. It, who needs 500,000 square feet? They just put 90% of their people home. What's that going to do to the to the to those models? And for you guys being, and I think this is a, a testament too, there are a number of firms in the architectural world that did not just survive during COVID. They thrived. Yeah. They were bigger when they went in or had, you look at revenue forecasts and they were better off when they, when they went through COVID than they were in the beginning. Why was that? They retooled and had to do something dynamically different to make their clients really get value. And Absolutely. that's, I think, what you guys are doing. Yeah, we, we doubled down, right, on, on any sort of initiative that we had technology-wise or just firm-wide. Um, in the very beginning, after we got over the initial shock of the fact that we weren't going back into New York City uh, for any foreseeable time, after we got over that, we doubled down on everything that we were doing. So rather than giving up on initiatives, we really went full force with them. And that's when we really created you know, some special opportunities in the technology world and creating this multiplayer version of virtual reality and uh, yeah. other ways of working. And now that's become the standard of, of how we work at Mancini, which is, yeah. which is amazing. Um, so... You know, how, how do we get clients to appreciate the costs involved um, in the number of hours that architects and engineers put in? Because in the end, you know, what we'll have is, you know, a, 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 a large project, let's say it's a 100,000 square foot job. In order to do that, let's say someone comes with a, with a 20,000 square foot job. The reality is the hours are exactly the same. Uh, maybe it's a little bit more on the hundred, but but chances are it might not. If it's an interiors, it's just a repeat of a bunch of floors that are you know theoretically about the same. You know, so how do we get how do we get clients to appreciate the fact that it's not based on square footage? You know, there is time that goes into figuring these things out, regardless of so the here, size. So here's, I mean, I think one of the cool things you got in your in your stable is you can deliver a project quicker than almost anybody else. Now, they may not believe it, but you could show them, look, this is what pre-COVID our process was, and here's where we are now. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I can get into a new space in a faster time with more dynamic and innovative tools at my disposal? What's the value on that? Right. And that means, is that mean that you can, you can create opportunities within that kind of in that structure for both the client to uh, do well and you guys do well. Meaning, does the fee really have to be based on a square footage parameter? Isn't it more, you know, what do we do to get you into your space quicker? Again, you said three weeks to three hours. Yeah. That's pretty fantastic. So selling that, now you're no longer competing with anybody. Right. You guys are differentiated. And the strategy behind a branding of that is a differentiation strategy. It's very different than competing with Gensel. Interesting. I like it. <laughs> so, and, 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 and differentiating takes a look at the pool around you and says, oh, can we really show that we are better? Okay, everybody's going to charge four bucks a square foot. Why are we the ones you should pick? Oh, they're going to charge you four bucks a square foot. They're still going to do standard stuff. 
It's not dynamic. You want to see what we'll show you? Yeah. Here, put these on. Yep. That's exactly our, our pitch, 100%. <laughs> so as you mentioned uh, students before, and I, I this kind of popped into my head. Um, if you were a professor of architecture, how would you teach project management and finance to, to students? Because that's something that is really glossed over in architecture school. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of professional practice. Yeah. You know, they kind of talk about that. But really, you don't. It's There's no real world experience to that. And, so, and maybe maybe you don't need to have that, right? I mean, maybe it is just an experience thing. I don't I don't think so. I think you can learn anything. I, I remember I met the dean at Clemson once. And because I'm not that far from Clemson, she said, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a semester on practice that's really fun? You know, and she winked at me like, now how, how much fun would that be sticking needles in your eyes? And I said, you know what? We could do it. It could be real world experience. We could look at projects, not case studies. That's too boring. But actually get them to go in and plan things and see how they would work and run something that would model. You know, you can model anything. Well, so you, I think you could make a dynamic um, project management training program and train leaders because, you know, the old adage is project managers manage, but they don't lead. Well, how do we get, I'd rather have leaders that are taking charge and looking much more dynamically and broadly. How do they deal with a client? When did you go to design school and get put into a situation, even in role play, where you had to deal with some crazy client who's <laughs> screaming at you? Yep. Never. You know? So I, I think, and again, these are some of these things have, have come out of both three-day project management programs or leadership programs where it's real stuff. I mean, the goal of any of the ZWIG programs that, that I ever did, you had to walk away with something that you could go back in Monday morning and apply instantly. Otherwise, you didn't get any value. Yeah, for sure. I think that's applicable if I was, and if I was teaching in a university setting. So speaking of value and 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 Zweig, uh, one of the things that you did with us is you provided us with a firm valuation. Um, and I, I guess how how does a an architecture engineering firm value itself? And I I just like you to take the audience through what what that means from the Zweig point of view, from your point of view, because I know there's many different versions of it, right? I mean, in the end, the value is you know, what someone would be willing to pay for it. Buyer and seller, right? That's right. So so, it, so if you take, it, we all got to start with a premise. A lot of the owners of architectural engineering firms are founders and they have invested their life into what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So the simplest valuation technique that we've used as a thumbnail was take your net service revenue and cut it in half. And that's the value of your company. And then everybody picks themselves up the floor and goes, oh, my God, that, that's not possible. It's like, no, that's probably what you're about worth. Now the question is, how do you get closer to one times revenue? Well, now you got a whole bunch of different circumstances. What's your debt load? What's your revenue forecast? What's your backlog look like? How much, how innovative are you? I mean, there's some intangibles in that, too. Sure. Um, so... When you when you when everybody gets picked up off the floor, you know you're in a partner room with six partners, and you go, well, you know, you're you're doing ten million in revenue, and your net service revenue is six. You guys are worth three million, and everybody just you watch them just crater. 
so what what you what most firms should be doing pre that process is to see how do I bring my value up over the next couple of years so that if I'm going to start exiting out my partners over a you know two five ten year cycle we're we're also pushing earnings mm-hmm. you know we want earnings to be strong so that ultimately the 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 valuation process. And there are some brilliant people who can run models and use a lot of techniques that will give you their idea of a critical value based on discounted cash flows or all the other technical aspects to value. And and here you go at the end of the day, you know, what's the value of the firm? Well, what a willing buyer wants to pay and that the willing seller will accept. Absolutely. That's and that's ultimately and that's how, how we are so, re, re, you know agreed to to our value. Now the other thing is, and here's the flip side is EBITDA usually drives a formula for earnings. So you could say if we're if we're doing if we're a ten million dollar firm and we're doing thirty million in earnings, technically there's multipliers of earnings, EBITDA, mm-hmm. that can get you to a higher level of, uh, of, of earnings, so 10 million, 3 million, not 10 million, 30 million. So I got $10 million firm. I do 3 million EBITDA. That's 30% net return. What's the multiplier of earnings that the industry is looking at as a whole that says I'm 5X? Right. So if I'm 5X, I'm over, I'm 15 million. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said it's only 50% NSR. Yeah, but if I got strong earnings and I got I got backlog for three years, and I'm in good shape and I got cash, I'm going to be a lot of I'm going to I'm going to be pretty sought after. <laughs> exactly. So, a lot of dynamics to that. One simple question: What am I worth? It's true. It's true. Yeah. Luckily, I, don't, I have twenty more years before I have to figure that out. So I'm I'm good right now. Yeah, you're smart. You got the plan, That's and right. you know when you got to start doing things. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, kind of bringing it all back around. Uh, if you had to do it differently as far as your career, what what might you have changed? <clears throat> you know, I don't. I don't think really anything. I mean, because you know, when somebody says, "Oh, you know, I think I would have gone and done art," well, no. I, then you got to eat. <laughs> uh, or, uh, gee, I would have loved to have done this or that. Um, everything that we are brings us through life experiences. It's not just the business side. I mean, we grow professionally, both because of our life experiences professionally, but also personally. You know, I can tell you that I've done a lot of backpacking. Lead, you, want to, you want to get leadership? You want to show five kids how to be leaders? Take them on a 120-mile trek through the North New Mexico desert. Leaders right. pop out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, team building exercises where you're, you're really having to manage and deal with some stressors and things, I think get you a whole lot more than sitting there, you know, learning some particular class. So I, I, I think that's honest. I don't think I would really change anything. I think everything that I did got me to where I, I, I got to. And, you know, it wasn't always windfall money, but it was always fun. Right. And um, I would agree knowing you and kind of know, knowing your, your path and, and, and uh, everything that you've accomplished, I, I would agree. I think you've had an amazing career so far and, and, and I'm sure it's still going in whatever capacity you want. 
And I love that the team building, listen, that was a big thing for us. Um, you know, once we're through this whole pandemic thing and we can get back to that, I can't wait because I agree. Yeah. Sometimes spending a, a day with someone outside of the office has more value than, you know, especially a Zoom call, but more value than just working on a project. Well, for a I'll year. give you another pearl from Mark. And Mark's got a lot of pearls, but <clears throat> he would always say, why do you want to do a retreat? Well, we want to take our people out and we want to do a retreat. Oh, Retreat, you want to go backwards and look backwards? Why not do something that charges you forward into the future? Get them out on a, a canoe trip or a kayaking trip or, you know, go take, go drive golf courts around and see how everybody reacts. Then come in and do a planning session. I like that. Who wants to look at what you already know? Yeah. Oh, and then that's good, right? Let's get together. What do we do the first day? Let's look at the past. <laughs> There's a lot of value there. Forget the past. Send out a, a handbook. All the information goes out. Everybody can read. You get it all. Great. Now we're going to move forward. And I think we did that a lot of times with the strategy things that we did. Absolutely. We don't. Why do I have to sit here and say, let's look at this quarter. Yep. Let's look at this year. It's a waste of time. Charge forward. And you again, I think you're a good indication. You don't sit around looking at the past. Past is good. We got to learn from the past. Everything flows from the past, but we got to stop into the moment and go, okay, here we are. What do we want to do in the moment? We got to be in the moment. That's the most critical thing. Yeah. Then if we're going to plan for the future, we got to charge into it. And you got a lot of dynamic people. I just saw something that you just hired a whole bunch of new people. Yeah. And uh, a lot of interesting backgrounds. I love the guy whose picture it was, he had the picture of the Roman forum behind him. That was cool. <laughs> I said, wow, Mancini just moved to a new office. <laughs> Not yet. One day. <laughs> People from all over the world. This is a good thing. That's great. Well, on that note, um, thank you so much. Uh, so I want, I want to thank you personally um, for everything yeah. that you've done for me and our firm. You know, we spoke about thought leadership sort of many, many years ago in one of those early planning sessions. And it took me years to figure out what that meant for me. And in a sense, this podcast is that, you know, I'm not the guy that's going to write articles and right. um, and necessarily give, you know, talks and that kind of thing. But I did find my voice with this podcast and I have you to thank for that and, and kind of pushing oh. that forward. Um so thank you for being my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast, uh, your enthusiasm um, about, you know, the whole profession, your career and and your life is is contagious. So thanks again, Ted. Good. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great time. Thanks, Christian. Appreciate it. Awesome.